Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. Imagine you're standing on the sidewalk in front of One India Street in the 1880s. You walk up the front steps of the Athenaeum's beautiful columned building and enter. You look around, and instead of a labyrinth of bookshelves or a front desk, you see an eclectic collection of, for lack of a better word, stuff. Some items you recognize. Others you can't even begin to guess where they came from. There are paintings and hats and tools and lacrimatories, or is it lacrimatories? What is all this stuff? And where did it come from? In the past episodes, we've been focusing on the catalogs of books from the mid to late 1800s, which were only available to members of the Athenaeum. But there was another feature of the library that was open to anyone and everyone with a sense of curiosity and 15 cents. Until 1900, when the Athenaeum became a public library, it housed its very own museum, with artifacts from far and wide. In this episode, Jim Borzileri and I invite back Betsy Tyler, author of The Nantucket Athenaeum A History, to talk about the Athenaeum's museum, where the items came from, and where they are now. I started by asking Jim and Betsy what it was like to tour the museum in the late 19th century. It was a rum. And when you walked into it, it wasn't so much, it didn't look so much like a museum, it's like almost a junk shop. It looked like everything was kind of, you know, sort of stacked in there. And it was like, there was no real order. It was just, here's some really interesting thing that someone brought back. You know, the idea of cabinet of curiosities, that's what it was. And even when the NHA had their first exhibit, probably in the early 1900s, because they were founded in 1894, it was the same same kind of exhibit where mixed media, you know, there were just a lot of different curious things jumbled together. There were no separate themed exhibits like we have today. And where did the stuff come from? A lot of it came from whaling voyages. Captains brought back any sort of curiosity they picked up, like war clubs and daggers and all kinds of weapons, which were popular. Seashells, you know, natural history objects, coral. And then local people. I was just looking, I had copied some of the old curator's reports from the Athenaeum back when I was writing the book about the Athenaeum, and I have the one from 1847 that lists all the new objects that have been donated to the Athenaeum for the museum. And in addition to like a flying fox and a scarf from Jane Island, there are things like a war cap and a belt from Ocean Island. And then there's a collection of butterflies from Dayton, Ohio. I mean, there's just an odd assortment of minerals, breadfruit and coins, flying fish, you know, some ancient objects like a Roman lamp from Vesuvius that somebody donated. And they seem to have enjoyed collecting lacrimatories or lacrimatories, you know, the term lacrimose, which means you're cheerful and sad. A lacrimatory collected your tears. It was a little vial. <laughs> so the Athenian had several of those. So it was a fascinating collection. When you walked into that room, every picture I've seen, it shows someone standing there. 
Yes. And I know, you know, Mrs. McCleave, I think, had her own private museum. So my assumption is there were no labels. You needed someone there to tell you what this was. I don't know if there were labels or not. Actually, you can't really see from those photographs, but there was a what they called a custodian mm -hmm. uh, who was always there. But you're right, Mc Mrs. McCleave, there was a private museum on the island, too, that was famous, that a lot of people visited in the 19th century. But there had been a museum from the get-go, the Athenaeum, even before these library societies joined together to form the Athenaeum. They had collected books and artifacts and museum objects, natural history objects. So it was always an interest. And there was, from what I understand, a pretty fascinating collection at the Athenaeum before the fire in 1846. And Mariah Mitchell, who was a librarian, had cataloged the entire collection in her own meticulous scientific way. She had listed the donor's name, described the object. She had just completed it and the list burned along with everything else. So, you know, we just don't know what was there. But I did find that there were a few things that survived the fire. 150 coins, a dagger from Java, two of those Roman lacrimatories for your tears. <laughs> and a Roman lamp from Corinth. And that's all that survived from the fire. So they started collecting immediately afterwards and the trustees thought it was very important for word to go out to all the whaling captains to please bring back, bring back artifacts, bring back items from the South Pacific because we want them for our museum. Maybe I'm asking to speculate too much, but I think of what we talked about with the books is the fire burned, we lost all their books, and Mariah Mitchell Lee really was aspirational about what kind of books she wanted in the catalog, but when the books were gone, it was kind of like, we'll take whatever we can get. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you were to use that same thinking with the museum, did it change in terms of what they were looking for and what they would include as opposed to what they would have included before the fire? That's sort of impossible to know. But I have a feeling anything that was of interest, you know, when somebody was sailing around the South Pacific and located a, a woven mat or a headdress or um, a war club of some kind, it was like, oh, this is really cool. People in Nantucket would like to see this. I'm going to bring it back. So I think it was, you know, whatever they happened upon. There were local items too, Arrowhead, Native American items, collections that local people had put together. Did it ever become something a little bit more curated like we would see today in a museum? Not that I'm aware of. Um, there are no reports that, you know, the curator's reports generally would just say what had been donated to the Athenaeum. And it was just, we take these donations, they're given to us. And who got to see it? At this point, the Athenaeum was a private institution with members, but who else might have got to see and tour the museum? Well, the museum was always open to the public for a fee. It was one way they made a little money. And I think for 15 cents, you know, you could go in and tour and have the custodian tell you about the collection. The Athenaeum always welcomed visitors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mariah Mitchell had her strange book of strangers. Which yep. I love. yep. So, you know, people would come to tour the library and their name would go in the stranger's book. But, you know, they didn't have the privileges of checking out books or anything like that. Yeah. And that's actually something we should probably mention because it's just sort of interesting from our perspective that 
there was this book that if you wanted to come in and you weren't a member, but you weren't called a non-member, you were, they used the Quaker term of someone who, for non-Quakers, they would say strangers. So it, in this beautiful handwriting at the top of each page, they would repeat it. It would say a list of the strangers who were visiting the Athenaeum, this date. And it would just put the date down where they were from. And I also think who brought them in. I, I don't know if you had to be brought in by a member or if it was I just think you did yeah yeah one of the proprietors would bring a guest in and their name would go in the book and particularly when Nantucket became a tourist destination in the 1870s and 80s the Athenaeum's museum was a real attraction it was a popular place and the Athenaeum you know, it was threefold it was a library it was a museum and it was a place of lectures and programs and they each had carried their own weight for a long time until you know, it became a public library. When it became a public library, how did that change how people saw the museum or saw the, the institution? You know, the idea of a public library is a, is a <laughs> does not really include a museum. And there was limited, there's always been limited space. There's never enough room for books. And there certainly wasn't in 1900 when they became a public library. So they immediately started looking for more space it just so happened that the NHA had been founded in 1894 and in 1904 had built this fireproof building on Fair Street. It was the first museum. Um, it's now the research library of the NHA, but it was one of the first concrete buildings in the country. And it was, you know, it was fireproof. It made sense to the Athenaeum that this museum collection should go there, which, and it did in 1905 in the NHA was glad to receive it because they were a new organization and they wanted to, to have a robust collection. So it worked, you know, for both parties, I think. So the collection was loaned to the NHA in 1905. You know, some of the best, most fascinating objects the NHA has are Athenaeum objects, like the, the jawbone of the sperm whale, the huge jawbone that's there and the model of the camels. And there's a New Zealand war canoe model, a big one that's intricately carved that was from the Athenaeum. Did any of them end up back at the Athenaeum or what, you know, what remains of the museum at the Athenaeum now? I don't think anything that went to the NHA came back to the Athenaeum, but the Athenaeum did keep certain items which I'm sure both of you know better than I do at this point, but the Athenaeum does have a collection of scrimshaw. It has a collection of paintings. Mm -hmm. A lot came from Frederick Sanford. You know, some beautiful oil paintings were part of his collection. Also, Athenaeum has a small collection of logbooks and manuscript materials that are, are really important. And those items stayed. And I'm not sure who made that decision of, you know, what goes and what doesn't, but not everything went to the NHA. Yeah, and obviously there's all the sculptures, to your point, that we have. So those those state as well. Many people know the Athenaeum as it is now. Downstairs, we have sort of the workroom and the technology, like the gallery and the learning lab. Upstairs, the Great Hall, which is reference and young adult and also for programs. And then the first floor is all books. What was the layout when it was in its original form, when it was also a museum and a private institution? Well, from what I understand, there were there are a couple rooms on the first floor that were separate from the library room. One of them was rented to the artist George Fish, who was there for a number of years. It was a 
pretty famous painter. And the other room was the museum. And then upstairs was the hall where the programs uh-huh. were. And at one point, the hall had seating for hundreds of people. It was an auditorium, really. Yeah. And, and didn't they start, I and mean, again, this is after they rebuilt in 1847. Didn't they have benches before they hit? I think they went from benches to what we think of as later on auditorium seating. Yeah, they had some sort of, I can't remember, some sort of bench, I guess. And then mm-hmm. they had what they called opera seating, you know, mm-hmm. individual connected chairs that seats folded up. And I think the other difference, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this, is that if you were to go upstairs to an event, let's say in 1860, just to pick a year, uh, if you go up there now, there's sculpture, there's artwork, you know, obviously there are the books, but none of that was there. I mean, it was an auditorium. I know it was beautifully decorated. We've got some pictures of some of the, the scroll work, I guess we would say, that was painted onto the walls, but all the artwork, everything else was was down on the first floor. I think many people still think of the Athenaeum as a little bit of a museum, a little bit more accessible than maybe in the past. It's completely free. So Jim, you work in the Great Hall every day. What What do you see as the remnants of the museum, what pieces are worth highlighting? I think a good chunk of what's upstairs was actually downstairs. Uh, we do have on exhibit right now some of the pieces of scrimshaw. Some of those might predate the 20th century. They might go back to the museum. But most of them have been pulling stuff out of the vault. So for example, we've got some information on Mariah Mitchell. We've got her a copy of some of her letters as well as some of her portraits up there. But this kind of brings up an interesting point. We had someone come in a few days ago was just ask I guess they're doing a research project on the Athenaeum building itself and they just said in passing wow this is just such a beautiful space it's wonderful how wonderful how you've kept charge of his history and I had to sit there and think about it Lincoln and I both looked at him and we ended up saying well actually no this was nothing like what it was back then you would have been walking in an auditorium this is artificial you know it suits our needs and our functions for today, and it allows us to display some of the other artwork. But in terms of historical accuracy, it looked nothing like this. There were no books up there, I don't think. Well, when they renovated the Athenaeum in 1995, they uncovered the original stage, which is what's there today, under a much larger stage that had been built. So the stage that's there now is the real one, the the very stage where Frederick Douglass and other people made their little talk. So part of it, you know, the ceiling has been, you know, the painting's different, of course, and and shelves have been added. You know, alcoves, much like Mariah's alcoves, have been created in the hall. But like Jim said, it was just a big open auditorium space and uh, had a beautiful ceiling, a beautiful medallion in the middle. The beautiful staircases, you know, those had both been, there were two staircases in the front of the building and they had been closed off. One is now an elevator and the other one had not been in use. And when the building was renovated, that staircase was restored and it's in use today. We called it Mariah's Staircase because it it is original. You know, there was an effort to make the building as historically accurate, but functional, you know, as could be. And I think they did an amazing job. This is sort of the dilemma. It's a beautiful space and it absolutely brings out, you know, it gives us a chance to display the artwork on its own as opposed to being kind of cramped together down on the first floor. But if you were to say, is this an historically 
accurate period. In other words, if someone from 1850 or 1860 were to walk upstairs, would they recognize it? No, the answer is no. They might recognize the stage because at least to Betsy's point, that's been restored back, but everything else would just be strange and different. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we're making use of an old space to meet current needs while being sensitive to our requirements, but also, you know, and also access the fact that we have an elevator, the fact that, you know, that you can get to the second floor if you're not mobile. This is, this is an advance. And the building always changed. It's not like we're, you know, we're sort of doing something new. One thing I discovered the other day was that I think the building in 1847, when it was built, I think basically it was whale oil lamps. And then about 1854, they immediately upgraded to the new gas jets. And then, of course, later on, they would have added electricity, the phone lines and everything else. Mm -hmm. So they were renovating all the time. It's not that, you know, we're suddenly doing something radical and different. It's more like acknowledging, yeah, the building always changed. You just have to figure out what period you want to bring it, quote, back to or what elements from the past you want to kind of incorporate. You know, it's not Williamsburg. It's not a perfect reproduction of the past because we're a functioning library. But I think also the acronym really captures the tradition of being both a library and a museum and a place that respects history. Right. I mean, it has a, a nice art collection. You know, has, well, a lot of public libraries don't have that. And it's it's pretty historical. The collection itself is. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's got a certain historical flavor to it that is uh, hard to match. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. It was researched by Jim Borzilleri. Special thanks to Betsy Tyler for contributing her research and insights. Please check the show notes for resources and references for this episode. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. If you want to know more about the Athenaeum's catalogs, you can visit Jim in the Great Hall. You can find us in the clouds at nantucketathenam.org. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about it. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, which helps others find the show. Join us next time to see what else is on the shelves of your.